0: Alright, turn to the book of Acts chapter 26. Can you hear me back there? Acts 26. Is that Davi and Megan back there? Where's that little one? We didn't get to see them yet. We will, we hope. Alright, I can't come right now. I'm at the pulpit, but can't wait though to see that little one. What a blessing children are, aren't they sister? And Davi back there. Anyway, we love y'all. Okay, Acts chapter 26, we're going to read from verse 15 and following. I'm reading in the English Standard Bible. This is when Paul was converted. This was his reaction when he first saw the Lord. He said in verse 15, I said, Who are you, Lord? And the Lord said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and stand upon your feet, for I have appeared to you for this purpose to appoint you as a servant and witness to the things in which you have seen me and to those in which I will appear to you, delivering you from your people and from the Gentiles, to whom I am sending you. For what purpose? To open their eyes, like Eric's, so that they may turn from darkness to light. And from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. Therefore, O King Agrippa, I was not disobedient to the heavenly vision, but decided first to those, declared first to those in Damascus, then in Jerusalem and throughout all the region of Judea and also to the Gentiles that they should repent And turned to God, performing deeds in keeping with their repentance. For this reason the Jews seized me in the temple and tried to kill me. This day I have had the help that comes from God. And so I stand here testifying, both to small and great, saying nothing but what the prophets and Moses said should come to pass, that Christ must suffer, and that... For being the first to rise from the dead, he would proclaim light both to our people and to the Gentiles. May the Lord add his blessing to the reading of his word. I have something to say to you. We've had the five points of Calvinism. Now we're going to do the sixth point. And that sixth point is, how can an evangelist be a Calvinist? It almost seems contradictory. If you've heard the five messages that have preceded this, it seems very stiff. It seems very, uh, restrictive. It almost seems anti-evangelistic possibly, one might conclude. We've called oftentimes the frozen chosen because we have this stiffness about the gospel. If God is going to save who he chooses and we have no role in that and it's sort of all predetermined, it's almost fatalistically arranged, it almost seems senseless for us to preach the gospel. Well, let's start, first of all, with being an evangelist. Are you an evangelist? You might not think yourself to be one, possibly. And we know that the Bible... That definitely tells us that the Lord ascended to heaven and then He also, from there, He gave gifts to men. And one of those various gifts is a gift of evangelism. You may not have that particular gift, but does that mean you're not an evangelical? You're not an evangelist? You indeed are. Let's talk then. What does it mean to be an evangelical? Luther, by the way, was the first one to use the term evangelical. And you know why that term was used appropriately back then and should be appropriately today is because it sets evangelicals apart from sacramentalists. Those are the two categories within Christendom in a way. In Christendom, those that are not Evangelical. You won't find a priest calling himself an evangelical. Even Episcopalians probably wouldn't call themselves evangelical or want to be categorized as such. Not all, but some, because their beliefs are that through the sacraments, grace is somewhat magically conveyed to the recipients so that they receive Christ, they receive eternal life, uh, independent of their voluntary contribution of believing, but simply it's done as an act by the church who's treasured with the abilities to be able to convey through the sacraments the mysteries of the faith and that individuals can receive this grace by way of what is called ex opera operato. It's a Latin term that means it's a it's a way of which grace is administered in an operational way to the person uh, indifferently, to their own personal reception of it, whether they understand it or not it 's still mysteriously communicated to the individual and that 's the life of the sacramentalistic individual in the churches that hold that perspective that it is through the graces of the sacrament that a person then has a Conversion experience, whether it's through baptism, the receiving of the Lord's Supper, or one of the other sacraments that the church may endorse as being of a sacred level. But on the evangelical, on the other hand, and I want to look at uh, some verses with you here, uh, because challenging you with the idea that you're evangelist might seem a little forward on my part, but if we can look at the first screen... Uh, right out of the Bible and with a question hopefully answered, all evangelical believers are or are they preacher evangelists? All evangelicals. And an evangelical is someone who has believed the gospel. And we're going to look at these uh, two passages here. First one is in Acts 8-4. Those who have been scattered preach the word wherever they went. Now that happened right after the, uh, the the martyrdom of stephen remember he was stoned to death which seems to be a a, a, tra, a a tragedy that the early church was confronted with and one might ask what was the purpose of this how could god allow his first outspoken evangelist deacon a person that was given amazing wisdom that nobody could refute, and yet he ends up, after speaking to the council, the Sanhedrin, they end up stoning him to death. But the good that came out of that is right here. Because the commission that was given in Acts chapter 1 to the apostles primarily was that power would come upon them, and they would be witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the other part, uttermost parts of the earth. Well, if you read carefully at the end of Acts 7, in the beginning, it says that the apostles remained in Jerusalem. They remained there until Stephen was stoned, and then because of the persecution that was breaking out, they had to scatter. God used Stephen as sort of the, 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 the firecracker to get them scattered away, and they went, and this is what they did, verse 4 of chapter 8. Those who had been scattered, that is after Stephen's persecution, uh, I mean, uh, put, being put to death, they who were scattered preached the word wherever they went. That word preached in the Greek is the word evangelical, evangelistic, evangelism. And in the 10th chapter of Romans, verse 15, where it's a popular verse, how are they to preach unless they are sent as it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. Now the word preach here throws us off a little bit because it makes it sound like the preachers are the ones that are doing the preaching. But again, the word that's here for evangelical is the same Greek word that's used here. How shall they what evangelize unless they are sent? The Those who evangelize the good news. And we know those who do evangelism are those who are scattered. That's what? A general audience of believers. There's no discrimination there. Young, old, male, female. They're presenting the gospel. They're giving the message of the good news to those around them. We are all who are born again truly evangelicals. So the question that we're asking this morning is how can we who are to be bringing the message to others, can we do that with the belief in the five doctrines that we heard about before, the tulip, the five points of Calvinism, the total depravity, the unconditional election, limited atonement, irresistible grace, and the perseverance of the saints. It is a bit of a challenge to try to Believe those points and yet at the same time be boldly evangelistic. My love of consistency with my theology shouldn't thwart my love to save souls. Let me get that point across. That's important. My love of consistency with my theology can't or shouldn't thwart my love to save souls. And God does not give us a theology that is hindrance; is a hindrance to presenting and proclaiming the good news of the gospel. Listen to what Spurgeon says. Those who believe only what they can reconcile will necessarily disbelieve much of divine revelation. He says, my love for conformity to my own doctrinal views is not great enough to allow me knowingly to alter a single text of Scripture. I have great respect for orthodoxy, that is, right doctrine, but my reverence for inspiration is far greater. So we may have a problem in trying to reconcile God's sovereignty, which are five points of Calvinism are very big on the point of the doctrine of God, or the sovereignty of God, and yet at the same time preach the gospel freely to the whosoever wills. Sometimes Calvinism gets mixed up with hyper-Calvinism. So when it, if, if you're known to be a Calvinist, or if you admit that you are one, people in their minds who don't know better might say, oh, they're hyper-Calvinists maybe not even using the word, but thinking the word Calvinism is equivalent to the word hyper-Calvinism. What is hyper-Calvinism? It's a denial that there can be a free offer of the gospel. Hyper-Calvinists often reject the idea of a universal gospel offer, which means they do not believe that the message of salvation should be freely proclaimed to all people. They may argue that the preaching of the gospel is only intended for the elect and there therefore is no obligation to offer the salvation to all. They may argue that the preaching of the gospel is only intended for the elect and there is no obligation to offer salvation to all. How is it that we can present the gospel to people who are non-elect, they haven't had the atonement provided for them, and yet we claim that we can preach the gospel to them? Let's look at the next one. Oh, we went ahead of, I must have clicked this before, huh? Let's get back. Next one. Hmm. Oh, okay, yes. Let me read to you the confession of a Calvinistic evangelist. I preach the gospel, calling sinners to meet the condition required to be saved, namely to repent, to believe, to obey. My part, on God's behalf, Second Corinthians five twenty, we're ambassadors for Christ, is to beseech and to plead with the lost to come, the hungry to eat, the thirsty to drink. God's sovereign part is to save whosoever he wills, Acts 2.39. Unconditionally, having predestined them for blessing before the foundation of the world, Ephesians 1.4. Yet in time, making them his children by giving them sovereignly the faith to believe, Ephesians 2.8 and 9. In the one instance, there is a universal appeal and optimism that all who here may be converted mark 16:15 but on the other hand there is an internal channeling of the word to the ones who god has chosen specifically to be his objects of mercy and grace acts 13:48 regarding the gospel's effect to the non-elect the words are unprofitable and fall to the ground Unheeded, Hebrews 4-2. But with reference to the elect, the word accomplishes that for which it was sent, quickening and saving. Although the reprobate by his own native wickedness despises the gospel, Romans 3-1 and following, nevertheless he too willfully and responsibly refuses out of his own preferred choice making him guilty and blameworthy for his rejection rather than excusing him for his own inherent depravity. He is guilty and blameworthy for his rejection of the gospel rather than the excusing of himself because of his own inherent depravity. I've heard people say that, well, I'm not not elected, therefore it's useless. What's the point of even seeking God or pursuing God? The bottom line is they're doing neither. They're not pursuing nor seeking God and using the idea, that well, I'm not an elect, therefore it's purposeless for me to seek after the Lord. That's, that's a false statement. The gospel, though popularly reduced to be merely an invitation presentation, is primarily a heralding declaration of the glory of God and the righteousness of God, intending to magnify God and not simply to save souls. We get that mixed up sometimes. We love to present the gospel evangelistically with hopes that people will hear, that they will believe. And remember, you're all evangelists. Paul says that you are the epistle of Christ, known and read of all men. If you are Christ's epistles, you would have sent saying, You're wearing, as it were, on you the sign, I'm born again. I'm an evangelical. I've been saved. The message of the gospel has reached my heart. I've been converted. And I am emanating the love of God and the truth of God and the righteousness of God. I am upholding the Word of God. That is why I am what I am. By the grace of God, I'm all of the above. Paul says, God whom I serve with my spirit in the gospel of his son. Notice the energy here of the evangelist, of us. I am a debtor both to the Greeks and to the barbarians. So much as is in me, I am ready to preach the gospel to you that are at Rome. Romans 1.15 For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone who believes. No wonder Paul could say, I endure all things for the elect's sake, that they may obtain the salvation which is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. The confession of a Calvinistic evangelist. Now, was Peter, was Paul, were they five point Calvinists? That would be foreign language to them, of course. Who's Calvin? What's five points? No doubt there was not a firm, systematic theology that was embraced by the apostles. They got the word directly from Christ. And under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit of God, they wrote what they wrote as those who were being carried along by the Holy Spirit. So what we know is truth is what's been passed down to us through the inspired, written word of God that we believe Cannot be wrong. The scriptures cannot be broken, Jesus said. All scripture is given by inspiration of God. That's what we cling to. Now let's look at, let's look at Paul for instance. Well, I guess we got Peter first, huh? Oh, let's see here. Ooh, no, I'm going too far. I want to start with Paul. All right. Romans 8:29 and 30, Paul writes, "Under inspiration for whom he did for no. That's the Lord. He also did predestinate to be conformed to the image of his Son, that he, that is Jesus, might be the firstborn among many brethren whom in those he did predestinate, them also he did call. Romans 8:29 and 30. Paul writes that in Romans eight. Look what he what said about Paul's preaching elsewhere. The one that wrote these words says in Acts thirteen, thirty eight nine, I want you to know that through Jesus the forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you by him, everyone by him to everyone who believes is freed. Everyone who believes is freed. Well, what about, didn't God foreknow, didn't God predestinate certain ones? And here he's saying that it's freely being preached to all who are believers or will believe. Skip down here. Acts 16.30, the Philippian jailer who had been introduced to the apostles in a hostile fashion, that is, that he beat them up, whipped them, thrusted them into the jail, and then there was an earthquake in the middle of the night after Paul and Silas were singing praises to the Lord. And then after the earthquake and all the prison gates were opened, the the jailer assumed that everybody was going to escape. But when he thought that, Paul and Silas says, who, because the jailer was about to kill himself, to commit suicide... Because he knew that his job meant a lot. He was very, a very trustworthy jailer and he, he, he had no other choice, but I can't live my, live, live this down if, if, if they, if they escape under my watch, so to speak. Paul and Silas says, do yourself no harm for we are all here. And somehow God used the songs that were sung, the manner of the apostles behavior, that he replies, What must I do to be saved? That was his reaction. And this is a response that's given to what must I do to be saved. They replied, Believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, you and your household. That is an offer of hope and salvation to the Philippian jailer. But Paul says that God predestined certain ones how could Paul say to this individual who he doesn't know what his, if his name is written in the Lamb's book of life, he's not positive that Jesus atoned savingly for his sins, but yet at the same time he's posing the gospel to him with hopes that if he believed in the Lord Jesus, he would be saved. And anyone in this room, and everyone in this room who's a Calvinist, you better believe that if you tell somebody that if they believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, that they will be saved, that they will be saved, because that's a promise of God. We can't we can't defy that. We can't x that out because of other passages. And you might say, well, these these things seem to be contradictory. They do seem to be. It's a paradox. There are many paradoxes in the Bible. How could Jesus pray in Gethsemane, Lord, take this cup away from me. If it be possible, take this cup away from me. How could Jesus pray that when he was a lamb slain from before the foundation of the world? I don't think you can provide a good answer to that. But we accept what are called antinomies. Something that's posed this way here, something that's posed that way here, we have to maintain both. That's what Spurgeon meant. That I'm not going to eliminate any passage or passages that say something because of my desire to be orthodox in this category. This is where we call, what we would call a balanced soteriology. We maintain the sovereignty of God 100%, but we also maintain 100% the responsibility of man. Let's read on here. Verse Act seventeen thirty. Oh, there's again. Go back one, yeah. Oh man. Yes, right here. God, this is Paul preaching in Athens to the Athenians. God now commands all men everywhere to repent. That is not hyper-Calvinism right there. If you can say to uh, to all the Athenians that they among all men everywhere must repent. That's the gospel offer. Now let's go to Peter. He writes in First 1 Peter 1-2 this is his doctrinal st- statement about people who are elect who he's writing to that they're elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father through sanctification of the Holy Spirit unto obedience and sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ. That is a beautiful passage that teaches us the interplay between the Father, God the Father, the Holy Spirit, and Jesus Christ. Is it not unthinkable that Jesus would die for ones whom the Holy Spirit would not regenerate and whom the Father had not Chosen in Him before the foundation of the world? You see, there has to be the interaction of the Trinity in oneness of purpose. The Father chose, the Son redeemed or atoned, and the Spirit regenerates. The Spirit will regenerate those for whom Christ died and for whom the Father gave to the Son before the foundation of the world. Now, what does Peter tell us in the book of Acts? What do we read about him? When he's preaching on the day of Pentecost, he says, Everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Everyone. We're not discriminating. We don't know who the elect are, who the non-elect are. That's not our business. Our business is to preach the everyones. Here, go down here. Unto you first. God, having raised up His Son Jesus, sent Him to bless you in turning away every one of you from His iniquities. Acts three twenty-six. These are all Peter uh, preachings. To him, all the prophets witness that through His name, whoever believes in Him, whoever believes in Him will receive remission of sins. Acts ten forty-three. Again, who will tell you words? This is the angel saying to to Cornelius about Peter's coming. This is wonderful what words can do, what God's word can do to a listener who's about to hear the message. He's telling he's telling Cornelius, get Peter, bring him on, because this is what he's going to do for you. He'll tell you words by which you and all your household will be saved. Not shall be saved or may be saved. They will be saved. Acts eleven fourteen. Now look at in verse in chapter two where he says that whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Right after that, in, in verse thirty nine, he says the promises to you and to your children to all who are afar off and everyone whom the Lord our God calls to Himself. So, does it make sense to you that the ones who are going to call upon the name of the Lord? are going to be the ones upon whom the Lord chose before the foundation of the world who He desires for them to call upon Him because He calls upon them. A knock signals a call. The question you could ask is this. Does a knock come first from God to you or from you to God? You know, you will call on God When He has called on you. This is how the Holy Spirit works in the life of a soul. And now here, even to the Gentiles, God has granted granted repentance that leads to life. How can somebody repent if God grants it? How can somebody come to life in Christ Unless God has granted repentance to that soul that leads to life. Romans 9, 16 said, It is not of him that willeth, nor of him that runneth, but of God that showeth mercy. Romans 2, 4 says, The goodness of God leads you to repentance. Praise God you've been led to repent. If you don't have a desire to repent, you haven't been led yet. The Holy Spirit hasn't worked in your life. Cry out to God for mercy. Read the Word of God. We have to tell you, seek the Lord while He may be found. So let's just break this down. Let's kind of land the plane and get to the to the methodology of evangelism. How do we evangelize? This church doesn't have an altar call. We don't say come forward if you'd like to receive Jesus as your Savior. There's nothing up here that has any magical powers, by the way. There's no movement of the body getting up, walking forward, that's going to make any difference. I preached in a prison a number of years ago, and it was on a Thanksgiving evening, and there was a lot of inmates that had filled the chapel up, and the uh, assistant chaplain was there, and uh, I presented the gospel, obviously. And then uh, a few days later when I went back to the prison and I met with the assistant chaplain, he said, wow, brother, what a message you gave. He said, but I don't understand, brother. Why didn't you give an invitation for them to come up forward to the altar to receive Christ? Why didn't you do that? He said it in a nice way, but he was very frustrated. And I said, brother, I did have an altar call. I did. We have an altar, I said. It's the altar of the cross, and I was telling people that. Go to the cross of Calvary. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world right now in your seat. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and you will be saved. There needs to be no delay. We don't need to build the emotion up with music and with song or with others coming forward. And then I've seen people drag people forward to come to come up to the altar. Really? Oh, come on. You come up on, come on, me. Come on. Yeah, come on. Okay, it's almost like I'm going to save you. You just have to come right up here and repeat these words. Well then, what do we do? In my open air evangelism, I have had people, praise God, that have come up to me and said, I want to be saved. What do you you think I should say? What would you say if that was you and believe like what I believe? I, I hope we believe in the Bible the same way, at least to some degree. Well, I said... Have you, did you hear the message? Do you understand the gospel? Do you understand what Jesus did on the behalf of sinners? Do you know that what you've got to do? You've got to believe in your heart. You've got to repent of your sins. You've got to obey the gospel of Jesus Christ, trusting him. Even right now, trust him with all of your heart. Believe on him from the depths of your soul and say, Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. The soul indicates they want to be saved. I said, what what I'm going to do right now? I'm going to pray for you. And after I pray, you pray. I put no words in his mouth. You want to be saved? I'm going to pray that God will save you. And it's up to you to pray after I do. So I pray, Lord, open this man's heart. Give him faith like you did to Lydia that she obeyed the message and heard it and trusted Christ. Might this individual do the same thing? And then the individual... On their own, they can pray. And I and, and I don't I don't like say, hey, it's a guarantee you're going to heaven now. But I do say if you have believed the gospel of Jesus, if you truly trusted him, you can count on what the word of God says. Not on your feelings, not on what I'm saying, but you're trusting in the word of God. Someone put it this way. I thought I had a um, screen for that. Um, can I get the second? Let's see here if we can do this. Yeah, right here. This is a true understanding of evangelism. A balanced view, I think you could say. Truly all may come. We have to believe that. Mark 16, 15 says, to go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. That gives me optimism. I have people ask me sometimes about somebody to visit on a deathbed. I don't get pessimistic. I get optimistic about it. I don't think, I don't think at all, well maybe he's not elect, I don't know, or she's an elect. I don't think that way. God doesn't want me to think that way. Paul, in, in, in Romans 9 to 11, those three chapters are really big on the doctrine of election. Jacob have I loved, Esau have I hated. Of, of, uh, Pharaoh it says, for this purpose I raised you up. For what purpose? So he could bring destruction on him and the Egyptians, okay? Reprobation, if you want to call it that. But right in the midst of that, when he's talking about blindness and pot has happened to the Jews, he prays right in the middle of it. Chapter 10, verse 1, he says, My heart's desire and my prayer to God for Israel is that they might be saved. In chapter 9, verse 2 and 3, he says, I could wish that myself... We're a curse from Christ for my brethren, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. You talk about a soul-winning heart, someone that has a burden for the lost. When Paul says, I would rather me be cut off, in a way go to hell, on the behalf of my brethren, my Jewish countrymen, that God would save them. My heart's desire is for them to be saved. All may come. Revelation twenty-two seventeen says, "Let him who is athirst come. Whosoever will, let him drink of the water of life freely." The whosoever, God so loved the world that whosoever believes in Him, all may come. That's one perspective. Some shall come. Some, praise God, will come. Jesus said in John ten sixteen, "Other sheep I have." which are not of this fold, them also I must bring, and they shall hear me. If Jesus says they're going to hear me, they're going to hear him. My sheep hear my voice. Jesus know who, knows in advance who the goats are and who the sheep are. But he is certain that those who are his sheep will hear his voice. I have other sheep that is of the Jewish fold among the Gentiles that the gospel is going to go to and reach them and they're going to respond, they're going to hear. That's a definite. Some, some shall come. If God didn't predestine and purpose some people to be saved, it's possible that no one could be saved or no one would be saved or that Jesus died in vain for no one in particular. And His death would be meaningless if it was just left up to us to be the ones to accept, no, God is behind the scenes moving the souls of men. Acts 13.48, The some that shall come, when they came, it says, these were ones who were ordained to eternal life. They are the ones that believed. As many as were ordained to eternal life believed. They did come. They would come. They had to come because they were ordained unto eternal life. And then the last one here. So that's enthusiasm. It's a, it's good. It's, it's good to know when you throw your fishing line into the pond that there are fish there. Would you go fishing in a pond that didn't have any fish? It would be ridiculous. I'm going to make you fishers of men. So the bait is the gospel. The fish are souls. We throw the seed of the bait of the gospel in hope that there will be fish that will respond to that. We do that optimistically and we know that there'll be those that will lay hold of it and believe the gospel and be saved. That creates a real enthusiasm and wanting to go, would you want to go hunting when you knew there no, there's no game out there in the woods? You wouldn't do that. We can go out with the gospel with optimism, with enthusiasm, believing that God is going to save somebody. Even though we might sow the seed here, it may not be reaped till later. Paul says, I, I planted a Paulus water, but God gave the increase. You don't know when God's going to give the increase. And the last thing is, and this is a fact, none will come. John 5.40 says, you are not willing, or is it verse, yeah, 40. You are not willing to come unto me that you might have life. It's not in man's will inherently to want to come to faith in Jesus Christ. It's not in their will. Romans 3.11, there is none that seeks after God. This is realism. This is the reality behind it. And these three truths are a wonderful balance to our understanding of evangelism from a Calvinistic standpoint. We believe all may come. We believe some shall come. And we believe none will come. Here's what Sovereign Grace Chapel believes. We are a doctrines of grace church. We hold to the five points of Calvinism. We believe in God's sovereignty and salvation by his predetermined counsels and electing purposes and man's incapability to regenerate himself by his own free will decision. Making because of the blinding, excuse me, uh, and man's incapability to regenerate themselves by their free will decision making, their free will making decision because of the blinding power of innate sin. Salvation is of the Lord from first to last. First Corinthians 1:30. One is saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. It is God who drew us, gave us repentance. John six forty four, Acts 11, 18. Enabled us to believe, Philippians 1, 29. Called us, Romans 8, 29. Predestined us, Romans 8, 30. Elected us, 1 Peter 2. Chose us, Luke ten twenty. Uh, that's rather John 15, 16. He ordained us to eternal life, Acts 13, 48. And even wrote our names in the book of life, Luke ten twenty. Yet at the same time, man has a responsibility to heed the invitation and is charged with the duty to seek, to believe, to call upon the Lord, and I have all kinds of verses for this, to deny themselves and to take up the cross, to enter in, to obey, and ultimately all the glory belongs to God and all the duty belongs to man. All the glory belongs to God and all the duty belongs to man. Kind of putting it in a perspective. Since the Bible talks about the new birth as a birth of the Spirit, reminding us of our first birth, that a person we, we, we created in the womb, we were conceived in our mother's womb, and then we gestated and we, we were toward inside the womb and eventually we emerge. And I, how many of you fathers have been in the uh, birthing rooms? I bet all your mothers have been. This is a father question. So you know what I'm going to talk about when I say what I'm going to say. The first time, and I had gone up, do they still call them the Lamaze classes? Lamaz, I don't know if it still has the same name, but that was a name they used to call them back in the 70s to prepare the parents on how the birthing will go, especially when the father's in the room and how we can help the wife uh, with the birthing. Well, this was my first time. I, I, I hesitated to walk in hospitals, period. Uh, seeing blood, needles, the whole thing just shook me to death. But I had to get as much energy up spiritually and physically to be able to walk into the birthing room. So um, I'm watch, watching anxiously. The doctor is there and the nurses, of course, are surrounding the uh, event. And um, I'm just there with my equipment on and the whole thing. And... Uh, And then suddenly, you know, I'm trying to help Michelle with the breathing exercise and trying to remember, what was that class? Oh, yeah, you got to do this. Hurry up. Come on. One more. A little harder. Push. push. Give him the whole, whole, coaching her right through the whole thing. Then all of a sudden, a part of the body comes out. It was the head. And the head had come out for a period. It stayed there. And I, I was looking at the doctor like, what's the delay, man? Like, come on, get... Get this thing over with. Just get those forceps and, mm, you know, just, it's simple. Why are you putting the pressure on her? But you know what he was doing? He was letting nature take its course. I I didn't see it that way. I'm like, what, come on, hurry up. Just, what, what does it take? Just get this operation over with. But he had to see it play itself out naturally because he had seen many births many times and that was his job. Well, we too as evangelists, we need to be wise in the way in which we see new births come to, come to pass. We have to stand by, like I have to say, hey, Doc, he knows what he's doing. I don't know what I'm doing. We need to stand by and say, Holy Spirit, this is your job. I'm only providing the food. I'm providing the seed. I'm providing the truth. You've got to do the work. That's your job. So we all, as evangelists, evangelicals, who want to present the gospel, need to be wise. And we need to say to ourselves, is this the Holy Spirit working here? I don't want myself to be the Holy Spirit. I want Him to do the work. And I'm going to stand by. I'm going to pray. I'm going to hope. And I'm going to wish that God is going to deliver this person out of darkness into His marvelous light and birth them from sin to the Lord and bring him into the love of salvation. I love the way the hymn writer put it this way. He says, Hail, sovereign love that first began, that scheme to rescue fallen man. Hail, matchless free eternal grace that gave my soul a hiding place. Enwrapped in thick Egyptian night and fond of darkness more than light, madly I ran the sinful race Secure without a hiding place. But thus the eternal counsels ran. Almighty love, arrest that man. I felt the arrows of distress and found I had no hiding place. What is this hymn writer saying? Almighty love, with that eternal grace. Rescue that man. Arrest that man from his distress. Awaken him, quicken him, make him alive. Almighty love. Arrest that man. That's the arrow of the gospel. That's the power of the Holy Spirit through the Word of God that can arrest. Have you been arrested? It would be foolish of me to talk about the gospel and salvation and hear there might be a soul that's not saved, that has never come to faith in Jesus Christ. I exhort you to repent to believe from your heart the gospel that Jesus Christ, the Son of God, bore sin in His body on the tree. And if you believe in your heart that He died for you, you can be assured that you're a child of the living God and have the truth of the gospel living and dwelling in you. And you have that blessed assurance that Jesus is yours, that He's the Lamb of God who took away your sins and bore the penalty in full on Calvary's cross as God's wrath was poured out upon Him. You can be saved. That is the good news of the gospel. Well, we're going to sing right now a song that's going to be on the overhead with the music in it. And I think the words the words will be there for you to sing along with and the volume will be up so we can sing this song, which I think is a wonderful song to prepare us for the Lord's Supper. And just at the end of the song, Brother Wally is going to open up in a little season of praise to the Lamb of God. Others, please join in. And then at some point I will... Uh, give thanks for the elements. So let's uh, get that song up and let's uh, sing this song. You can remain seated. You can remain seated. Notice the words.
1: How sweet and awful is the place With Christ within Mercy, that you have called us to love you and live for your glory.
0: the sacrifice being provided with your son Jesus Christ the Lord of glory the Prince of life and so Lord we give you praise and worship that we can take this sign as a symbol of the blood that Jesus shed at the cross and be thankful Lord that we can say he died for me and that the blood of Jesus cleanses us cleanses me from my sin Lord we give you the glory and praise as we drink this cup in remembrance of your Son. In Jesus' name, let us drink. Could the ushers come forward for the gathering of our offerings?
2: so we pray, Lord, that we would make it our practice
1: to think during the course of the week the joy and the pleasure of being able to give to this work, Lord. And let us cheerfully give now. Let us cheerfully give just as we have cheerfully received. Lord, be glorified through Jesus, your holy servant. Amen.
0: Alright, we're going to make some announcements at the end of the service because everybody's here. So um, we're going to start off with Rob Caprera. You have an announcement. Where are you? Okay, my brother.
2: Show of hands. Who thinks
0: you might be coming, just so we'll get a sort of rough idea? All the men, amen, amen. Please respond to the email that was sent out as well. That'll help us to get a good count. Good, good. Okay, very good. Um, real quick, uh, for those of you that go to the Brimfield Bible Study, it's going to be canceled this week because of uh, the Brim- Brimfield Fair, and then the following Tuesday, many of us are going to be at the Ocean City Baptist Bible Conference, so there won't be any Brimfield Bible Study the next two Tuesdays. There will be a study starting up in Wales, not Wales, in um, Munson. Randy's going to lead a Bible study on Ephesians on Monday, the 18th of September uh, at... Uh, Six. What time was it, Randy? S- Six thirty. Okay. That that's it. With Don Scheneverth's residence is and the address is in the bulletin. Um, also, um, Linda Drake. Some of you might remember her. Her son Matthew died at forty-five just this past week. There's going to be a funeral for him here on Wednesday at eleven o'clock. If you'd like to come, and 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 also the wake is going to be at the Moral Funeral Home here between five and seven on Tuesday. So the the wake Tuesday, 5 to 7, the funeral here at 11 o'clock. And then last one, Seth Fuller, give us an announcement, brother.
3: All right, we are ready to start up small groups again in our, our fall semester. Uh, we always start after the Ocean City Bible Conference, and obviously that's next. that starts next Sunday. So... We're looking at the about two weeks from this Sunday is when most of your groups will start to get going. Uh, it'll depend on your group. Mine will start a little bit later because of things we have going on, but they're coming soon. So I put out sign-up sheets in the back. Um, we're we're going to do something slightly different this year. Uh, many of you have been a part of a small group, and if you enjoy your small group, if you love it, amen, keep going. Let your leader know that you want to continue to enjoy going to their small group. Um, But I also recognize that sometimes you might just want to try a different group, or you want to go to a group that's closer to your home, and for some reason you might want to switch. Maybe it depends on your schedule. So, in the back, right next to the Blackberries, because everybody stops to get the Blackberries, uh, I put out five sheets, and they list the leader, the location, and the time of all the small groups that we're doing this fall. If you'd like to attend one of those, please do. We encourage you, especially if you have not done small groups, to please attend one. These are groups where people get together and do spend time talking about the Word, talking about life, but but do it on a more personal, relational basis. So that's how it's very different than a a Bible study. Um, And it's a great way to get to know people in the church, to really start to um, know more about their spiritual lives, to pray for each other, and so the, the groups are really good for that purpose. And so, um, if you'd like to join one, even if you have not ever done one, please put your name on one of those sheets in the back. Um, if you're already in a small group again, you can put your name on the sheet. You could just let your leader know, hey, I'm coming back this year, and, and we'll just make sure everybody gets plugged in somewhere. So, any questions? See myself. You can see Pastor Gary. You can see Pat. Um, we're three of the leaders, so you can ask any, any of us those questions if you have any.
0: Okay, very good. All right, uh, any other announcements? Okay. We're going to forego the last song. Uh, I think your voices are kind of so-so today. Uh, <laughs> and I know it's a beautiful day out and it's getting late. So let me just give the benediction. Let's stand up. Be ye steadfast, unmovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, for as much as you know that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. May the Lord bless your day, brothers and sisters. Have a great weekend.